So this is Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm Adam Castellano. With me, as always, is Dr. Tony. It's good to see you, Pastor Tony. Yes, or Coney Taffy, as some people like to call me. I've heard this. That works, too. Okay. Um, And then then there's like Tony and Sonia, and sometimes there's like Sony and Tanya as well. We get that. Jumble it up. What would your couple's name be? Tanya? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. All right. Is this like the... Ben Affleck and yeah, J-Lo thing. Yeah, way back I, when. I don't know. We haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that. Now. Yeah, no, nobody really does. <laughs> so we're back in the book of Hebrews. We are Today we're looking at your message from two weeks ago. Yes. Uh, you covered all of Hebrews chapter 8, talking yeah. about uh, Jesus, the high priest of this new and better covenant. Um, you went over several points. Big section from Jeremiah, just kind of cut and pasted right yeah. in there. Yeah, and it's... It, You'd said it's the largest quotation mm-hmm. of the Old Testament and the New yeah. Testament, and it's shockingly consistent, which, mm-hmm. you know, for those apologists who want to know, like, is the Bible reliable? This is proof, because he had the same book of Jeremiah that we have. Yeah. The LXX, right? So there's a little bit of textual criticism at work there, and uh, there's some variation between the LXX of Jeremiah, and then there's... So, we're getting into the weeds here, but oh boy. there's different LXXs, actually, oh. different copies of the Septuagint, and some people wonder, like, is he doing it from memory? Is that why there's variations, or is he tweaking some of the pronouns? But uh, that's a whole discipline. We probably don't have time for that. No. <laughs> but uh, so we're looking at chapter 8, and the text opens up talking about how, you know, getting into Jesus's role as our high priest— mm-hmm. And it makes an interesting point, and you explored this a little bit, but you said that the, the Levitical priest served on the earthly tabernacle, but Jesus entered the true tent in heaven. Mm-hmm. And you touch upon this a, a little bit. We, I think we've talked about this before, about how there is this throne room in heavenly heaven. place yeah. um, that the old covenant tabernacle is just a copy of. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we could talk about that a little bit today. Like, what purpose does this temple serve? Is it it simply where God dwells? I mean, God's everywhere, and He's, you know, His Spirit. There's no place where you won't find His Spirit. He knows everything. But yet He has a throne room. It's just a fascinating idea. Right? Exactly. Isaiah in the throne room of God, and the the smoke filling up the temple. You have the, the, the seraphim that are singing and praising God. Yeah, what is that? Some metaphysical reality mm-hmm. outside of uh, our own time and space. So the reason that we derive this understanding about a, a kind of, you know, God's throne room tabernacle is because of verse 5. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is one, another one of those verses where you're like, tell me more. What does that mean? <laughs> but so Moses, yeah. uh, I, I, there was a Bible project video on this that kind of captured my imagination, as they often do. And mm-hmm. they had Moses up there on Mount Sinai and it kind of went 3D, and Moses is like surrounded by <laughs> this uh, uh, heavenly tabernacle, and then he's like trying to capture it so that when he comes back down and starts writing about the earthly tabernacle, he can mirror what he saw in Mount Sinai. So something mu- like that must yeah. have taken place, Adam. That's pretty cool. So there, so so there's that, but then you're, there's also like the systematic theology of how do you mm-hmm. put. Uh, an infinite God and an omnipresent God and some kind of metaphysical reality in the in the sky, in the heavens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's another issue. Um, uh, uh, if you want to say, you know, um, 
Well, we do have Revelation 21 and 22, right? We do have this yeah. tabernacle, if I can use that term, that comes down, mm -hmm. and God dwells in our midst. Jesus is there, obviously embodied, resurrected. And then where is God in that? Well, he's, he's in a special way manifested in that tabernacle, but he's also everywhere else. Yeah. All the new heavens and the new earth as uh, he creates them in ways that we are not, in ways that even Jesus isn't, as he's the embodied Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It's pretty fascinating to think that Moses, in some way, shape, or form, saw that tabernacle and had to, like, carry this responsibility to make sure the earthly one... Yep. Like, was don't he, mess it up. Did he have, like, a photographic memory? Was he taking, like, little sketches? I don't know. I mean, that was... Ten cubits. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, I've always wondered that, too. Like, the cubit, you know, is, like, the distance from mm -hmm. the tip of your finger to your elbow. Yeah. Like, did every Hebrew in the Old Testament have the same size elbows or something? <laughs> like, wouldn't that be a different... Yeah. So they must have had, like, one of the priests, and they're like, you're the cubit guy, yeah. okay? So you go He's around there, the and you measure out the, the <laughs> space for the tabernacle. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So we know a big um, turning point in the book of Hebrews is the writer contrasting the Old Covenant with this new better covenant. Mm -hmm. And he says here that in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's saying that there was, you know, the Old Covenant was faultless, but then in verse 8, he makes a point to say for... He, he, meaning the Lord, finds fault with them. So it sounds mm -hmm. like the fault doesn't lie in the covenant, but with the people. So my question is, was the old covenant faulty simply because of the weakness of the people? Or was the covenant itself faulty? Like it, it, it was designed to be faulty? This sounds like a chicken or an egg kind of question. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I, I think the fault, you've, you've got to attribute it to the people. Yeah. It, it's, you know, what... God has created, has that perfect sense to it. But, um, yeah, I mean, part of, and and it doesn't say, the authors say it specifically here that it was faulty or flawed. He just says, if it had been faultless. Right. <laughs> so it's a nice little circumlocution so mm -hmm. that he can still protect the idea of the perfection of what God brought forth to them. But, yes, I mean, I think if you really had to, Say one or the other. You, you've got to say it. The the flaw was built in the people, unable because it's, it's a bilateral covenant, right now. Right, it depends upon the the ability of the people to follow through, and they can't. And in God's sovereign plan, that flaw had a purpose because the uh, the shortcomings of the Sinaitic covenant lead us to the no shortcomings new covenant. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he quotes Jeremiah, and he talks about mm -hmm. this new covenant that he would establish with Israel and Judah. I talked with some of my small group, and they were debating, and they were wondering, you know, he says he's going to make it with the house of Israel and Judah. Yeah. And it's clear, like, we would say, oh, of course, it's the new covenant. But he, he focuses on Israel, but not on the rest of the world. So how do we squeeze ourselves into this text, or is this only about Israel, or is this about everyone in the New Covenant? Well, we're grafted in, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the Romans passage, and and there is a sense, as Paul writes in Romans, that everything really hinges on Israel, and we are the grafted in ones. Mm -hmm. We are the wild olive branches, yeah. me and you. You know, you're mm -hmm. Italian, I'm Scots-Irish, 
So we, we get the benefits of God's promises that initially came with Israel. And, and so that's kind of baked into the cake of the covenants. Mm-hmm. Even the new covenant is yeah. uh, making a new covenant with Israel. Wink, wink, by the way, we're going to graft in those wild olive branches. And, and I, we should be careful, too, because there was some provision for that even in the Old Testament world. Mm-hmm. You know, there, Uriah was a Hittite. Uh, Ruth was a Moabitess. There are uh, the Old Testament equivalents of you and I in the community of Israel. But it was one where you came into Israel and yeah. you became part of that kind of insular people of God community, whereas Jesus changed the paradigm on that and it becomes an outward trajectory. It mm-hmm. becomes something missional. And I mean, that's what Jesus says. The last thing he says in Matthew is go make disciples of all nations, including those wicked all pagan nations, Gentile yeah. <laughs> nations. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I mean, Depending on how you interpret this, there's differences of opinion on Israel's role in the end times. Mm-hmm. Um, those who run in our circles see Israel as a viable uh, people group that God is going to direct his attention towards in the tribulation period leading into the millennium, yep. and the church will be raptured out. Not everybody has that view, and mm-hmm. even some of my heroes don't have that view. That wasn't Jonathan Edwards' view or Calvin's view or Spurgeon's view, but that's my view and um and I have provision for that in covenants and, and language like this. Yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar, do you think he was saved? I do. Okay. I think we'll see him in eternity. Yeah, I, th- I always think so too, but I've heard people debate that. But his final testimony is pretty powerful at the end of uh, his time in Daniel. Um, he might be the wickedest person in, <laughs> in heaven. You yeah. know, I heard that Manuel Noriega got saved when he was in a prison in Florida. Oh. And oh. it was something about the... And I mean, here's this guy, this, uh, he was a communist, right? Like this mm. dictator and did some horrible things. And we went in there and, and, ex- and, and removed him from power. And then in a prison cell in Florida, maybe he got saved. And wow. someday in eternity, we might see Manuel Noriega. <laughs> I mean, that's just wild. Yeah. Or Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. I heard Tommy Nelson say once, you're going to be shocked when you get to heaven <laughs> and you see the people who are there and then find out the people who aren't there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... And it's interesting to think about, um, just to, to wrap up this Gentile thing, that Paul said that was kind of a mystery hidden, that Gentiles can be co-heirs mm-hmm. along with the Jews in the New Covenant. But even then, there's these little hints here and there yes. in the prophecies about... Isaiah. Like, Isaiah time. talks about it, like the Gentiles will mm-hmm. seek him and his banner. And, and Even the Abrahamic covenant, the idea that yes. uh, all the nations of the earth yeah. will be blessed through Abraham. And you have to wonder, because the big turning point for those who remember, in the book, it was in Acts chapter 10 when the Lord sends Peter to Cornelius, mm-hmm. and it's the first Gentiles who receive Christ. And it was, it was shocking. It was almost scandalous. He goes back, and they're like, what were you doing? Mm-hmm. But then Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. I wonder what they were thinking. Oh, they'll, they'll get circumcised, and then they can be disciples. But and it's almost insulting as Peter converts them, or, you know, <laughs> not converts, you know what I mean, like yeah. preaches the gospel. God told me to say that no unclean thing, like you guys. <laughs> like you animals. Yeah. You know, no, you're clean now. I was like, oh, well, thanks, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for calling us unclean. Yeah. So <laughs> verse 12 is that really powerful verse, and you, you talk about it and you quote a really awesome um, snippet from Surgeon, uh, Spurgeon um, about it. And 
it's a powerful reminder, but I know Christians, and I do, I struggle too, we often still struggle with our forgiveness. No matter how long you walk with Christ, you, you still have these shortcomings, and there's these moments where you think, you know, God can't really forgive me, you know, I've messed up too many times, or there are people that I know who struggle with the, the, the legalism. They still think they need to do something to get God's favor. So how would you, you know, address someone struggling like that? Yeah, we've been working through this a little bit because we're reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Hmm. So there's a moment in Pilgrim's Progress where after he gets saved, he gets this document that's called like uh, a certificate. And then he's as he's going on the, his way to the celestial city, by the way, this is an allegory for the Christian life, yep. he loses this certificate. Hmm. And then he starts freaking out, and he has to, you know, work backwards to try to find the certificate. And then he gets it, and he's, it's like this really happy moment where he praises the Lord, I found my certificate. And we were talking about, like, what is that? Because <laughs> John Bunyan would not have believed in a loss of salvation. He was yeah. a hardcore Calvinist and a Puritan. So the theory that I heard from Derek Thomas and others is that this is his assurance of salvation. He lost mm. it along the way. And T Derek Thomas was even talking about how that's something that we can actually bring upon ourselves by, by you know, perpetual sinfulness and a lack mm. of really uh, dealing with sin or uh, something. He said even there's uh, an understanding in the Calvinist tradition that the Lord can remove that for a time of testing, your mm. assurance of salvation, which uh, I had never heard that before, and, mm. and that kind of scared me, like, really? I mean, the Lord would do that? But, I mean, there are, let's just say, that in the reality of our world, we live in a fallen world, we're messed up folks, even after being saved, we have a sin nature inside of us, and we have these moments of doubt and struggle. And sometimes our, our assurance of salvation and our confidence in Christ can be compromised. Is that, is that okay to say? I mean, it's... Mm. it's uh, and, and what I want... I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about this, like, I don't want to talk you into your assurance of salvation. Right. Like, I don't want to... Con I mean, that's something that should be generated from the inside, like mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. That's been my experience. You are a child of God, Tony, and, and yeah. that comes with conviction, and that comes with the changes that God has shown me, and that shows that comes with First John language about yeah. you know loving the brothers and forsaking the world and all of that other stuff. So yes, I mean, this is the truth of God's Word in our best moments. We mm -hmm. read it, and we believe it, and we say yes, hallelujah. In our worst moments, we drift or doubt or Satan, you know, puts those those little seeds of doubt inside of us, and uh, that's our experience in this world mm -hmm. until eternity. And uh, I wish it wasn't that way, <laughs> but um, God even uses those moments and those struggles for His greater purposes. Yeah. So. Right back at you, Adam. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I was going to uh, mention that. In my life, when I first came to Christ, I don't know if this is true for everyone, it was like... From an emotional perspective, I was like in a little bubble of like joy and excitement yeah. about Christ. When you first got saved? When I first got saved in my teens. But as I got older, that didn't remain forever. You know, there are times when I feel emotionally excited and, and, and happy in God, you could put it that way. But I think God deliberately did that for a short time as I was growing and maybe incubating in the Word. I had that sense of excitement and assurance. But then I went through seasons, what you might call dry seasons, where yeah. emotionally I didn't necessarily feel that kind of enthusiasm, but it was on purpose. 
because my faith is not based on my feelings. It's not based on yeah. how up or down I am. It's based on the unchangeableness of his promises, just like verse 12. And so I, I've gone through many different seasons like that, seasons where it was like, I know the truth, but maybe God seems far away, either emotionally or, or experientially. And those seasons are good because, as you said, the, part of that is a testing of our faith, and it mm-hmm. should drive us to the Word. And when I struggle with sin, I'm not you know, looking to my performance or ability. I'm looking to His faithfulness because I can't overcome a temptation on my own. Mm-hmm. As you know, Paul says, God always provides the way of escape. Mm-hmm. He's that source. And so I found that um, what's so amazing about this passage, you know, it says, I will remember their sins no more. God, you know, can God forget? Like you said, he can't forget. Like God knows everything, but it's almost as if he's choosing to f- forget our sins, mm-hmm. if I could use that language. like, and, and the only reason is not because I did anything to deserve it. It's because Jesus Christ took all my punishment on the cross, yeah. and that's never going to change. No matter how good I feel or bad I feel, no matter how, like, we could, we could lure ourselves into this fantasy that, like, if you go a few days doing well, like, well, I prayed every day this week. I feel right. so spiritual. Well, you're no less worthy of his salvation then than if you missed a whole It's very week. superstitious, isn't it? You Almost, kind of fall into yeah. that. And, and the Lord's promise here is, is it's theocentric, not anthropocentric, right? He's yeah. promising what he's going to do. He's not saying, you're not going to have doubts. You're, you're not yeah. ever going to struggle. You're, you know, He's saying, I'm going to forget this. Yep. And this is the truth that you need to point your your uh, faith and your uh, emotions, too, in mm-hmm. your moments of struggle. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I deal with this as a pastor all the time, and, and sometimes it's really pragmatic. I appreciated what you said there, because that doesn't sound like it's derived from maybe a struggle with sin, but sometimes I've had people come up to me and say, I'm struggling with you know, assurance of salvation. I'll be like, well, you know, have you been at church in a while? No, I haven't been to church in six months. Well, that might be the reason yeah, why. Some, some you know? things, and I'm yeah. sleeping with my girlfriend, so oh, yeah, that doesn't yeah. help. You know, So there's things that we can do to really compromise, I think, that confidence yeah. we have in Christ. But even, even good, upstanding you know, Christian people who are following the Lord can, can wrestle. And um, yeah, we've got, we've got to train our, uh, our minds to, like you said, go back to the Word of God and, mm-hmm. and stand fast on the truth of that. And that's, that's, that's a training process. We've got to learn those habits. Yep, absolutely. So uh, the final verse in this chapter, the writer says something fascinating, and, and he, he kind of hints at it, but he doesn't spend a lot of time because, like you said, there might be people, his original audience, who were just kind of so glued to the Old Covenant. He says that it's growing old and ready to vanish away. Mm-hmm. And we know historically it, it didn't just vanish. It was cataclysmic. You know, the mm-hmm. temple was destroyed, and... And it was, you know, this groundbreaking kind of earth-shaking moment. So mm-hmm. why do you think he used that kind of language, like vanish away? It, it, it evokes so much from it, but... It's bordering on prophecy. Yeah. I mean, S- Stephen and Jesus both gave us uh, a sense that they knew ahead of time that the temple was going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And... You know, in a sense, for the Christians, it had grown uh, 
diminished over time. Like, yeah. you know, maybe in some sense as a Jewish Christian, you would still want to participate in these sacrifices. Even in the book of Acts, you see some of the places uh, where the disciples go or when they minister to people is in the temple. Yep. So the temple was still part of part of the, I don't know what you want to call it, like their cultural milieu mm-hmm. where they're spending time with people, maybe even offering up sacrifices. Didn't Paul, Paul like shaved his head and went through a Nazarite yeah, vow? Yeah. You know? So, I mean, this was still so much a part of who they were as Jewish Christians. But this author is cluing them into the fact this is going to be gone soon. Mm-hmm. Like the temple is going to be nothing, and and if you're so fixated on that old covenant world and these things that you grew up with that are so tangible, you can touch and feel and see with your eyes. I mean, what are you going to do? How are you going to fall apart when the temple gets destroyed? Mm-hmm. You've got to have that new covenant. You've got to have those eyes of faith, and um, so in that way, I think it's really instructive yeah. for that audience that he's writing to. He's He's warning them. There's a lot of warning in Hebrews, but he's also like prophetically saying, mm-hmm. "Stop fixating on the old covenant. It was good, but mm-hmm. it's it's obsolete now in light of what Christ has done, and it's about to disappear. And you need to be emotionally prepared for that." Yeah, he's almost kind of being delicate, but what, when it actually happens, it's it's almost hard to deny. It's almost like this sharp cutoff because for those who don't know, in 70 A.D. Rome came in and just wiped out the temple, mm-hmm. the whole city. So it's not like, gee, what was God saying? Was it like just a minor footnote? No, it was like, boom, It this is over, this is done. And so, yeah. And it over. hasn't resumed for 2,000 years. I know. Like, And there are people who want to rebuild it, but yeah. they can't. And unless, you know, we know it, in the tribulation, things will change. But yeah. it's such a dramatic, almost obvious thing. But without the eyes of faith, you don't see it. It was just like, oh, the temple's gone. It's so terrible. But they, unless God opens their eyes, they didn't realize that this was a sign that now the new covenant is here. So I heard Chuck Smith say once, they have that movie out about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what it's called, but you know, so good Bible teacher in the Calvary Chapel tradition. But he would always go to Israel every year, mm-hmm. and he loved Israel You know, in that world, which is kind of the dispensational world that you and I are in as well. Like they love Israel, but he would always get into these arguments with Jews <laughs> that would, you know, lead them around um, Israel and be like, "Where's the blood?" You know, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, all this stuff of the Old Testament, which you guys love, but you guys got no blood, mm-hmm. and without blood, there's no remission of sins. Like, I mean, that's part of even the Hebrew scriptures. So I'm sure he did it uh, generously and kindly in the mm-hmm. way that he interacted with them. But I mean, that's a real missing element of yeah. that faith. And obviously we say, you know, nothing but the blood of Jesus saves us. We don't need blood. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the new covenant is so important. Yeah. So final thoughts as we wrap up chapter 8? Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, the covenant concept is probably pretty difficult for people Mm. because it's not something we use a lot. Maybe in Christian circles we talk about the marriage covenant where if you said that to somebody outside of the Christian circle, they'd be like, what? (laughs) But, uh, I mean, there are those corollaries uh, that I think are close enough where we can get an idea of what we're talking mm-hmm. about here. We have marriage, we have the, the bilateral nature of this wife is making commitment to this husband, promises, we have contracts, we have kind of our modern-day world of engaging in this kind of mm-hmm. commitment. 
And uh, I think what's significant about the new covenant is the, the way in which God puts the onus on himself and mm-hmm. says, this is me, I'm doing this. And uh, he doesn't say this, but he might as well. You guys can't be trusted to follow through <laughs> with your side of things. Yeah. Um, so this, this one's on me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. Jesus took it upon himself, laid down his life for us, and our job, if you want to say it that way, our part in the covenant is a worksless faith, we believe. And praise God, that's that's all we got to do. Amen. Well, this has been Footnotes. Every episode's available at vbvf.org. Once again, thanks, Pastor Tony, for being here. Thanks, Adam. We'll see you next time.